Hello and welcome to another episode of Designing with Climate in Mind. I'm John Koo, and in this series, I'm joined by a range of sustainability and built environment experts to explore how we can best design our way out of a climate crisis. For the last eight years, my role at Interface has seen me meet and collaborate with leading thinkers and doers in the realms of sustainability, science and design. And in this podcast, I get to share these conversations with you. Today's guest is Cressy Wessling, MBE, a multi-award winning environmental entrepreneur and co-founder of Elvis and Cressy, a brilliant social enterprise that transforms waste into beautiful luxury accessories, whilst also giving back to the community at the same time. Cressy has been a driving force in the social enterprise movement and was one of my inspirations who led me to work in sustainability. We'll be exploring the power of design to do good, the green recovery as an opportunity to rethink our relationship with waste, as well as the power of disruptive innovation to make a more sustainable economy a reality. Hi, Cressy, and welcome to Designing with Climate in Mind. How are you and where do we find you today? I am extremely well and I am in North Kent in Tong Mill, which is the which is our home and also the home of our workshop and has been for the last seven lovely years. And um, how's, how's, how's life and lockdown been down at the mill? I have to say we feel incredibly guilty uh, because all we can see is that people who are in an urban space, you know, they're competing with everyone else for outdoor time and, and sort of seclusion and access to nature. And we have an abundance of nature. You know, being in, in a mill building means that basically most of the windows you look out, uh, out of are, are looking onto a two-acre uh, pond, mill pond. And we have all kinds of incredible life out there. We've got um, ducks and coots and moorhens and kingfishers and cormorants. And, uh, you know, it's just ridiculous how much wonderful wildlife we have. We even have the very rare mammal, the water vole that lives along the front. Uh, and it's just nonstop activity. So even when I, I mean, life can't really get you down out here because all you have to do is open a window or step outside. It must be so nice to be able to connect with nature. And I, I was going to ask, does that kind of fit with you as a person? What drives you, what inspires you and what has inspired Elvis and Cressy as a brand? Yeah, it has. I mean, I, I actually I actually think there's a there's a really strong thread running through it. You know, I grew up in Western Canada. My family were really outdoorsy. We went camping a lot when I was a kid. I went to these outdoor ranch camps where you'd be sort of riding horses into the Rocky Mountains and, um, you know, melting snow for your water. And, <laughs> and, and that kind of childhood gives you a different perspective on life because you expect nature to be big and bold and, and permanent and everywhere. And then and then, you know, obviously I moved, I moved to Hong Kong and now I'm in the UK where, where I would say nature exists here, but it's very much constrained. You know, there's a footpath and there's a pub and there's a fence, which is just totally different to my, my childhood. But I do, I do think that having had access to nature has gave me a ridiculous appreciation for it and love of it. 
and almost a feeling of, uh, well, I mean, I, I talked about guilt before for sure. I've always had a, a profound sense of sort of guilt or, or feeling like I, I had debts that I could never repay. And those debts are largely to, you know, the natural world and to the amazing opportunities that I've had in life. And I suspect we'll be touching on a lot of those debts that I think we owe as society and as individuals, especially when it comes to waste yeah. um, in, in this conversation that we're going to have. I was going to start by saying, I mean, I, I'm a big fan of Elvis and Cressy. Um, I'm also a customer. I've also tracked your journey for a number of years. Um, and in fact, I think watching, I think you speak at, um, I think it was like the Emerge Conference back in 2011 or 2012 was one of the reasons that I switched out of careers and started moving into sustainability. So I owe you a great debt um, for that. But I was going to say, for those that don't know Elvis and Cressy as a brand so well, could you tell us a little bit about what you guys do and how it all started? Yeah, absolutely. So I I first moved to the Hong Kong, to, sorry, to the UK from Hong Kong in 2004. And I moved here because I had met the amazing Elvis. We were both living in Hong Kong and um, his company moved him back to the UK. And I was enjoying my time there. I was doing environmental projects, but I was desperately sad without him. And I'd never really experienced Europe and I really wasn't ready to go back to Canada or anything like that. So I thought, why don't I come to London and see what it's like? And I had this amazing year in London where I'd worked out that I had enough money to uh, survive for a couple of months, you know, maybe even six months without an income, provided that I, you know, lived in my house chair, didn't eat uh, out, didn't, you know, spend anything, didn't even use public transport because that was too expensive. So I was running everywhere and walking everywhere. And I just was allowed to follow my nose and my nose led me to waste. So when I came here, the first thing I wanted to know was, you know, what are British people like? What's the culture? What's Wimbledon? What's football? What's cricket? But I also wanted to understand what people here threw away. And in 2004, you couldn't get that information on Google because ONS data wasn't uploaded and life was, I suppose, a bit simpler then because you could go to the British Library. They have a business and IP center still there, still amazing. And everything that I wanted to find out, I could find there. And the first waste statistic that sort of slapped me in the face was that 100 million tons of waste was going to go to British landfills in that year. And I was kind of obsessed by this number, 100 million tons, 100 million tons. So I was wandering around for a few days, rolling this around in my brain, completely incapable of understanding what 100 million tons actually looked like or consisted of. So then I started doing a pilgrimage to all the landfill sites that I could get to on two legs. And I went to waste transfer stations. I went to recycling centers, to MRFs, which I suppose is kind of my spiritual home. Um, and then, and then I started to see really fascinating things because you go to a landfill site, your first landfill site, expecting it to absolutely stink and, and, and for it to be this chaotic, inescapable disaster. And that's not the case at all. Of course, you do have some disaster there where you've got mixed wastes that you know can be recycled, but they're now contaminated. But you also saw 
truck after truck after truck of mono wastes that was coming straight from industry. And these materials were clean and they were coming and arriving in known quantities. My first mono waste that I spotted was closed cell uh black foam. This is the kind of high density foam that you would use to create packaging for a camera. Now this was arriving because obviously when you take out the little holes to put your lens in or your camera in, you've got these little cubes that are left over. And there was three trucks in a row of this material that arrived. And I get that foam waste is difficult to recycle, but not when it's clean and not when you've got that amount of material in, in one, so that in was one pre-consumer, place. so yeah. kind of post-industrial way. So that, yeah. that one, there's a lot of cameras that that would have, and a lot of camera accessories, yeah. but two, that stuff hadn't ever seen a shop floor. Never. That was just the cuts. Yeah, it had never seen the light of day. It was brand new virgin material. And it had been, it was lit- literally the definition of single-use plastic. And there it was, or no use plastic, no, even worse. It's no use plastic. <laughs> no use plastic. And there it was. And I, re- I just got angrier and angrier, but then I got more excited and I got more excited and I started, you know, now I would have fed this into some sort of online algorithm and had a big, beautiful virtual map. And it's wonderful that there are some organizations doing that now. But at the time I had this little notebook and I started uh, drawing all of these uh, items that I was seeing. I started writing down the license plate numbers of the trucks that were there. I started getting the contact details of the people who were dropping off, the people who were crushing. I, I was just trying to get a wider picture of, of everything. And then I realized that at the landfill site, you know, that's death. And if I wanted to rescue one of these materials and intervene, you can't do that from a landfill. You have to swim upstream like a salmon, and you have to get it at its source. So I guess you were being a little bit like a, a waste detective, kind of curious in, in finding out this information. I, I, I am an insanely curious person, and, and I think if I hadn't been going to the sites, I wouldn't have had the opportunities to really get to grips with the physical volume of some of these waste streams and and really sort of start to understand the scale of the problem because you can understand it in the sense that there's a number 100 million tons but until you've seen it and then you realize that that's just one of hundreds and hundreds of sites then you really have no idea of of how big this issue actually is and then that's not even counting all of the waste that we export right so so yes i'm very curious and i think you know i my life changed in the, uh, over the course of those months because i knew that i'd never be able to leave landfill after that i knew that that i was always going to be involved in this particular issue in terms of um what you guys have created i guess it starts with that trip one day to a fire station. Yeah. So, so when I was in, in the landfill sites, I saw, I did see a fire hose and I thought, that's weird. That's really weird. I didn't expect to see something like that here. So that, that triggered something in my brain. And then I was at the same time, I was doing an ISO 14,001 auditing course because at the time I was, I was really quite keen to understand how do processes work? How could we make processes better? And I am really not a process oriented person. So I wanted to give myself a kind of institutional, um, bureaucratic mindset for a moment and try I and understand. I love the fact how. that you're going to start with the standards <laughs> and compare it where that would have taken you to where 
this actually took you <laughs> fascinating. <laughs> Yeah. So, the, but but of course, I had these great ideas of learning ISO and and just being a guru at it. But re- the reality was that I still, even in the course, wasn't interested in it. And, and and neither were the two absolutely lovely firemen who were there from the London Fire Brigade, who were trying to work out what they could do with the London Fire Brigade to improve its environmental performance. You know, they have a leaky Victorian estate. They have a lot of appliances that run on a lot of different kind of, you know, a lot of fuel and, and, and everything like that. So obviously I spent most of my time chatting with these two amazing guys from so the fire service. So they were your study buddies. Yeah, in ISO they were my study buddies. Yeah. Uh, they were, and I said, so guys, I saw this fire hose in a, in a landfill site. Why did it end up there? And I said, oh my goodness, like that's one of our problems. We have in London between three tons of fire hose and 10 tons of fire hose that gets decommissioned each year. And I said, oh, why is there so much variation? And they said, well, in a good year, we're only decommissioning three tons because that's the hoses that reach the end of their health and safety life, which is 25 years. So each hose can serve in active duty for 25 years. But we sometimes have to go up to about 10 tons because we've just got so many hoses that are damaged. So when you have really big fires, really big events, uh, that tends to decommission a lot of hoses all at once. And then you can, then you can get a bad year, which is a 10 ton year. But on that first visit, to Croydon. So in Croydon Old Town, they have an amazing team of 10 people who do everything they can to repair hoses and keep them going. But that team also decommissions them. You know, I saw these rich, red, lustrous hoses coiled up on a rooftop and I thought, yeah, this is it. This is what I'm going to do. Because 100 million tons was an enormous problem. But three tons, well, I could carry three tons hose by hose. Each hose weighs 18 kilos. I had, of course, because I didn't have enough money for buses, I had walked there. Or I know I think I ran there because I was training for the marathon. And then I was I said to the guys, "Well, I'll just run one of these hoses home." And they were laughing at me. And I did basically run with it until I was out of sight. And then <laughs> I'm going to say ten kilo weight vest on a long distance run is hard. An eighteen kilo fire hose is is pretty pretty hardcore. And very, I, only, I only had to go. Training. I only had to go 50 meters until they couldn't see me anymore. And then I sort of almost keeled over, but I did, I did make it home and I, and I put it in the middle of the floor and Elvis came, came back from work that night. And, and he said, what's this? And I said, this is what we're going to do. And he said, what was, it, was this a usual occurrence? That Elvis would come home and you'd find a different material. <laughs> or was this the first time? Yeah, I think, I think by at this point, given that, you know, on his amazing holiday to the Philippines, I had dragged him to a landfill site. I think he he was prepared for the kind of person he had decided to spend his life with, you know. So we're in your front room. There's a fire hose on the floor. What's, what happens next? Well, I went back to the British Library because I wanted to become the world expert in decommissioned fire hoses to try and understand what is the next best thing that this material can do other than save our lives. And again, the the British Library was a phenomenal resource because, you know, I found out that it's nitrile rubber. It's a double wall nitrile rubber surrounding a nylon woven core. It's made in Yorkshire. Then I went up to the factory in Yorkshire and saw it being being manufactured. I'm loving this detective work. Yeah, got a lot more information from from the team there. Did you find that people were surprised, like the guys that made the hose in Yorkshire, or even the firefighters, about how much of an interest you you had in this material? What, what was their reaction like? 
it was definitely a comedic value. That's why I think people kept me around is that, is that we, I was clearly optimistic and friendly and, and, and maybe, you know, too enthusiastic. And they thought, you know what, it's worth, it's worth a punt. Like we'll happily entertain her for 20 minutes because this is just going to be a good story to tell. And I discovered two things in the research at the British library, which is, which is why we make the products we make today. One was that some of the old school French luxury brands use nitrile rubber in their, in their collections all the time. And they've been doing it since the sixties. Um, and I also learned that this um, um, WWF, the World Wildlife Fund, had commissioned a study on the luxury industry. And they had basically not given any luxury company in the world more than a C plus in terms of its social or environmental performance. And that, again, really annoyed me because I thought, you know, these companies have uh, it's supposed to be about provenance. It's supposed to be about craftsmanship. It's supposed to be about the story of how it's produced. How can that story be one of destruction and degradation and exploitation? But that was very much the story. And and it annoyed me. And it it kind of provoked provoked me. And I suppose that's where there was this really funny time that happened. Because right in the beginning, although everybody thought we were funny, I actually thought everyone else should have been the butt of the joke, right? The so power they, of perception and kind yeah, of seeing the, the reality yeah. depending on where you stand. I just couldn't take any of these brands seriously after reading that, that report. <laughs> and, um, Especially where you know. they were in 2000 and kind of yeah. 2005 compared to where some of them are now and also where yeah. they need to be in the future. But yeah, I mean, they've done, there's been a lot of there's, well, you can view, there's two schools on it. There's been a lot of work, but also, you know, the union of concerned researchers in fashion issued a report last year that basically said in the last 10 years, we've seen a lot of talk and virtually no action. And we've seen an industry that's just spectacularly good at celebrating mediocrity. And, you know, this is from the people whose lives are about studying and understanding that industry. So I take what they say at complete face value. All right, we're going to come back to that because there's some work that you guys have been doing with Burby that I want to talk about a little bit later. But first off, what, what led you to that first product? So you've been to the library, you found out that it was being used by the luxury industry, which is fascinating. I love how so, so many great circular solutions and reuse and reimagining solutions have their roots in the past but people just don't realize it or there's a waste material that they've never connected it being used like fishing nets and carpet for us would be um something similar yeah i think for for us the the first product just really happened it was a complete accident we knew about what was happening in the luxury we we had an idea we could make it for that and then elvis had an old belt and you know how sometimes the leather just gives up the ghost. I think he'd inherit it from his father. So the leather on this belt had died, but the buckle was still good. And Elvis is this insanely multi-talented individual who, instead of throwing out the belt, just said, well, I could probably put some of your fire hose on this. And while he was doing that, um, I got a phone call from somebody who was putting together the Live Earth concert, which was at Wembley back in 2007. And they asked... Um, what could I do in terms of sustainable, you know, sustainability for that event? Because I had a bit of a reputation at that point for being, you know, sort of green and, and, and stuff like that. Well, and I reputation. Said, <laughs> so I, and I said, well, 
we could probably make you belts. And, and Elvis looked up and sort of raised an eyebrow at me. And I said, a thousand belts? Yeah, yeah, I'm sure we could do a thousand belts. And then both of his eyebrows were raised. And then they said, um, yeah, we need them in about six weeks. I was like, six weeks? No problem. <laughs> and what mega complex factory have you got to turn to? Or are you sitting in your front room, the same front room that the uh, that the hose was sitting in? Oh, hold back. We, we were in, we were just sitting in the front room at that point. We had access to a shed in Elvis's parents' back garden. And that first night after I accepted this order, this is a lesson in over promise. Yes. But then absolutely over deliver. We decided to start cutting these belts and we only had kitchen scissors. And you can imagine trying to cut through four mil of of, of high high grade synthetic rubber with kitchen scissors is not going to get you anywhere fast. Maybe I cut three that night. Elvis cut maybe eight or nine, and both of us woke up the next day with a claw instead of a hand. And your so, scissors are going to take a battering on the on the blades. Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! So we then went out the next day. I was like, "Well, this isn't sustainable. This isn't going to work." But instead of giving up. I found that you could buy basically a pizza cutter that you could plug into the wall. So imagine a rotating pizza cutting blade that comes with a really high powered motor attached to it. And that can cut through hose like nobody's business. So we bought one of those and that still is our only capital investment as a company. We bought one of those for 39 pounds and 99 pence. And we cut all the hoses and we found a buckle supplier and, you know, we cleaned all the hose by hand and bathtub. We did everything by hand. We delivered. And then the miracle, the real miracle happened because at this concert where people typically would only buy, you know, take cast your memory back. People were still buying CDs at concerts, not downloads, uh, maybe CDs and T-shirts. And we sold all the belts, every single one of them. And that was really the start of the business. We used that money to buy a sewing machine. Elvis learned to sew. We then came out with our first collection of bags. Those sold incredibly well. And then it was, that's, you know, then we went from the shed to a garage, to a workshop, to a bigger workshop, to a bigger workshop, to the mill where we are now. And yeah, 25 people. <laughs> it's really remarkable. And I, I mean, I love the fact that you kind of, with that first initiative it's so entrepreneurial you had to fake it until you make it and you you did make it you made a thousand belts so it started with the fire hose but since then you've moved on to so many different waste materials and finding clever ways to turn them into something beautiful so how many different materials are you and elvis up to now in terms of what you're reinventing I mean, if you if you think about the materials that we reuse in our lives, it's definitely in in the in the hundreds. But if you think about the ones that we're institutionally reusing, as in we've come up with really viable solutions that if wildly um, adopted could eliminate those waste problems, then I would say about 15 materials that we're at now. It's so cool. Like even the packaging, that was one of the things that struck me um, when I ordered um about that you know the packaging was itself from waste materials even i think the little card and the label was from a, from a waste material it was, it was beautifully done yeah the 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 card you would have had would be from a rescued tea sack because tea sack tea comes into this country in these giant paper sacks that are three layers of craft paper and then a fourth layer where it's laminated to foil and to polyethylene 
And they have that because the foil blacks everything out so that there's no, um, you know, UV that gets at the tea when it's being transported and the, and the polyethylene is so that there's an airlock and it doesn't lose its flavor. But the problem is because those four layers are bonded at the top and the bottom, the whole tea sack gets uh, thrown to landfill or to incineration. It does not get recycled. And we found a way to bring those tea sacks here, separate the layers and reuse them. So until we, until we had that process, actually, we didn't ever have leaflets or brochures or anything because I just thought that rest recycled paper wasn't really good enough. Not when there's rescued paper, not when there's this incredible resource coming into the country by the, you know, literally by the boatload. Think about how much tea we drink. Um, well, to give you an idea, a year's worth of Elvis and Cressy packaging comes from tea sack that we collect from one of the major tea blenders over the course of three days of their production. It's kind of crazy. And I have to suspect that with more people working from home, tea consumption might have increased. Although office tea is quite high too. Um, so I was, I was thinking the other thing that fascinates me about the way that you guys work is how you view a material. Like you see a real value in the products you make. You're very keen that we repair them. In the choice of materials you choose, you're geniuses at reinventing and realizing what's what's possible. But in terms of your relationship with materials and what you'd like us as society's relationship materials, what, how is that and what would you like to see changing? Well, I guess the first thing is, is that, is that you have to cherish everything in your life. You know, you have to cherish your time. You have to cherish whatever talents that you've got. You have to cherish your friends and your family. And you certainly should cherish the, the carbon that you use and the water that you drink and the materials that flow through your life. You know, we, we have spent probably the last three generations going from what was a circular economy to a completely linear economy where we take and we make and we waste. And that just doesn't make sense to me. And I suppose I, you know, I think of my grandparents, I think of the, the bed, there's this bedtime story my grandmother used to tell us when she really wanted us to go to sleep and it was how you store cabbage through the winter. <laughs> and I think about the reality of her life. She grew up on a farm where they had an acre kitchen garden. And if they didn't grow enough food to can to keep them through the winter, they would starve in the winter time. And they didn't throw anything away. You know, I have inherited beautiful quilts from her that are made with two inch squares of fabric that were from every piece of textile that ever entered their lives. And I just, I just don't understand why why we now have a relationship with fashion and we love fashion, but we don't love the textiles themselves. We don't cherish the farmer that grows the cotton. We don't love the craftsperson. You know, we, we have companies that think it's perfectly acceptable to underpay employees just because they exist in a country on the other side of the world. You know, I just think you have to you have to love everything about being alive because it is really precious. And that means the materials too. I just don't think you can pick and choose what you're going to cherish. I think you have to go for the whole thing. No, that makes sense. And I think, you know, let's have a look at what you, one of the materials that you guys chose to kind of reinvent and how you're, I think you're changing an industry through it. Tell us about 
how Fire and Hide started and rugs and how you managed to start using waste leather. Yeah, so leather was amazing. As you can imagine, over the years, we went from being this crazy group of kids to, you know, uh, to the place where everybody sends their waste problems. So I get a box of interesting waste every every week. I'm allowed to open it on a Friday because Elvis knows that if I open it before a Friday, then that's it. And I'm gone for the rest of the week mentally. I, 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 I love that. the process and the boundaries that have been set there. <laughs> so, but if I open it on like two o'clock on a Friday, that's fine because then the weekend, that's my own time. That's when I invest in in looking at this material. But we had someone back in 2010, send us, uh, you know, a shoebox filled with leather scraps. And he is a saddle maker. He's makes some of the most beautiful saddles in the world. And he loves his, his leather. He cherishes every last little speck of it. Despite how many saddles he makes, this guy literally has a, has basically one bag a year of leather waste, but even that annoyed him. And he said, what could you do with this? And I was looking at this bag of leather thinking, well, we can make something and send that back to him. But I thought if he has this problem and he's very careful, then what does the rest of the industry look like? I made a few phone calls. I called some businesses where I had uh, some contact. And within five phone calls, I was looking at about eight or nine tons a month of leather waste. And that's just, that's just companies where I knew somebody there and somebody would answer a question. And then I started looking for some more research on this. There was a UN study that came out in, in, in that year, 2010, and it suggested that there might be 800,000 tons of offcuts. This is, so this is post-industrial pre-consumer offcuts every year globally. And, and even then in that report, I think they said, but we know that this is low because nobody is actually reporting very well on it. Lots of people won't admit to having a waste problem. And it's a, it's a growth market. So, so by the time you're reading this report, all of our data will be completely out. So 800,000 tons then really hit me in the face. And, and that was the time I, I, when, you know, the Ellen MacArthur Foundation was just kind of starting to kick off and, Somebody like some people were talking about the circular economy, but nobody was really designing for it yet. And and I wrote this brief to Elvis. I said, look, you know, we have to take this and I don't want to design products. I want to you know, I want to design for deconstruction. I want Lego. I want DIY. I want this, that and the other thing. And I put that in front of him and I handed him this bag of leather waste and and I said, right, go. <laughs> and then he came up with these three geometric shapes that that you can weave together to create hides of any size. You know, we've made, we've made tapestries for hotels that are three meters high and 12 meters long and cover entire walls and all with seven centimeter square pieces of leather that really otherwise would have gone to landfill. So, so we started doing this. We started experimenting in 2010. We started talking about it publicly in 2013. And that's when I was approached by uh, Burberry who were very excited by this solution. And they said, look, like, how could we help you scale it? How could we, how could we be involved? And it was such an exciting conversation because lots of brands had approached us before, but they were all too afraid to admit that it was their problem. And I think really I have to give points to Burberry because, you know, not only did we start this five-year partnership, but um, I'm also on their environmental and ethical advisory board. So, you know, they certainly, they certainly do 
respect our our views and where we are and they do see that where we are is a more of a model of 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 the future of luxury is is where the industry has to go you know they're very honest about that which is which is very cool so tell us how it works and what the, the product looks like so you've created this kind of leather lego from the scraps yep. it's modular so you can kind of put it together tell us a little bit more about what you found from a design side and what you were able to create with it so the the first thing was we, we knew we could do two dimensions. So our first products were were rugs because you can you can weave it and and then we found that this was actually a phenomenally cool offering for a rug because there's very few rugs that you can order today where you can pretty much to a tolerance of three and a half centimeters get exactly the size that you want. Or you you know you can have a huge rug and then if you move to a smaller house, you can you can unweave that rug down the middle and make two smaller rugs, or you can turn it into upholstery for a chair. Or we had this genius client in the US, because, you know, let's face it, the rugs are expensive. It's each piece is hand cut and hand woven. But what she wanted a rug to go under her California Super King bed, and these are enormously wide beds. And we, she was just like, oh, that's a bit pricey. But then I said, what if we just did a U shape so that there was no carpet underneath the bed? And that that made it a third of the price. <laughs> so so that's cool. And then you've got the element where, you know, if somebody if a dog eats one of the corners, well, we just can replace that piece. So it's it's it, it allows you to do to do rugs. No problem. Then we realized that we could make cubes. And then we were really away because we thought, oh, if we can do cubes, we can do any three dimensional thing. And that's really where the fire and hide range came from, where we have woven leather panels for bags and luggage. And then we tend to have fire hose handles and bases in, you know, in your high traffic areas where it might make more sense to have something that's wiped clean. And then another thing I think you found was you were able to, to have workshops where people could actually connect and make bags and rugs themselves. And I think that's something you worked, you know, with some of the Burberry employees popped down as well. But so in terms of that personal connection as an individual with making things from what well, I'm going to say kind of um, leather Lego. How's, how have you found that experience as a, a learning experience or a way for people to connect with the circular economy? It's, it's mind blowingly awesome because when people come for a workshop, they're generally here for several hours and they're here very much in our, in our home and in our life and in our workshop and we're a 100% transparent brand. So there's nowhere in the building they can't go. There's nothing they can't see. There's no question they can't ask. So that's the first thing that people think, wow, this is kind of, this is kind of amazing. I'm here. But the, the making experience is, is, is wild because people design things in completely different ways. I thought everyone would come, they'd look at the leather, they'd pick the colors they wanted, and they would just start weaving. But some people need to look at the leather and then watch what's going on and think about it for three hours. And then like rapid fire, they go crazy at the end. Some people, you know, in some of the evening workshops, you know, they have a glass or two of wine before they get going. Some people need to color, you know, they'll get a template and they need to sketch and draw and plan everything meticulously before they begin. Um, whereas other people never even do a sketch, never, never touch a piece of paper. So it's fascinating to watch people interact with the materials to ask all the questions they want to ask. But the best result is that you get to see people making something that makes sense for their, for their life. You know, they're choosing colors that go with most of their clothes. You know, they're choosing something that they want to wear every day. 
And they get a real appreciation for how long it takes to make a piece because not only do they choose their colors and cut out the pieces, they also weave them together. And then they realize that that's only, you know, 30% of the work because we then have to line it, put pockets in, do all of the trims, etc. So I think it gives them a profound respect for how long things take to make. So we've explored the reinvention of fire hose and we've looked at how you're tackling and disrupting the fashion industry with waste leather. But what's what's your latest collaboration about? Um, I hear you've been doing some work with Queen Mary University. Yes, um, and it, it's kind of I'm, I find this very hard to contain myself. I'm so excited about it, but um, we have dreamed for absolute years of being able to make our own hardware. So in in our world, that means belt buckles, D rings, rivets, things like that. And and that's why you'll notice about everything that we make that actually the hardware is very minimal. So we don't have big bling buckles and it's because we don't, we don't make that. And we can't guarantee you that it's made of recycled metals because the industry can't make those guarantees. Um, and in the UK, we also have a waste problem. You know, we have 16 million alu- aluminum cans that get littered into our public spaces every year, which is mind boggling, but put that next to the 2 billion cans which don't get recycled because they're put in the wrong bin. And then you really start to lose your mind. And I just thought, you know, why is this material not being recycled? And I think it's genuinely because, one, we don't have a deposit system, which we absolutely need, which I've been campaigning for for a decade. But two, we just don't cherish it. We don't understand it and see it as a noble metal with all this wonderful potential to do incredible things. We don't understand that, you know, recycled aluminum is 95% more efficient than virgin aluminum. So we've got to hold on to it. Um, so at first I thought, well, you know, 3d printing is all the rage. I'll just get a metal 3d printer and I'll chuck the cans in one end and get my buckles out the other end. So that's where the research really started. I started calling everybody who had written any kind of academic paper on metal 3d printing. And the answer was pretty universal. Yes, these machines exist. They're more than 300,000 pounds each. And no, you cannot put cans in one end and get a product out the other because, they only take highly refined metal powders as input. So you could put platinum powder into it or, you know, steel powder, nickel powder. Um, And 300,000 pounds is a lot of money when we're talking about disrupting the multi-million pound uh, recycling system. So I found some geniuses at Queen Mary University, and we are working together to design a solar-powered microforge because, of course, as a circular economy lover, I'm not going to do anything that requires fossil fuels so that we can collect these cans and turn them into hardware. But we want to build this machine and we want it to be safe and we want it to be able to be built anywhere in the world for less than $500. So that's our own internal goals for the machine. And we're doing it in an open source way, which means that the whole design process is taking place in the open. And anyone who wants to iterate on what we're doing and adapt it for their own needs is free to do so. We are not patenting it. And part of the reason for that is that I don't really understand patents anyway. If you do something cool, why do you want to be the only one doing it? 
with respect to, you know, saving the planet and preventing catastrophic climate change. I don't know why anyone wants to have a monopoly on goodness when we need as much goodness as we can get. But, you don't want to go down in history as a person that had the solution. He was like, oh, no, no, they can't mine. use that. There's, there's <laughs> yeah. plenty of time. No, there's not plenty of time. There's yeah. 10 years <laughs> to turn it around. Exactly. And the other thing we thought was that if we open it up, then we're, we're inviting all of these other geniuses all over the world to share how they're going to use it as well. And, you know, we might want to use it for aluminium, but that, that's got a 660 degree melting temperature. Imagine what we could do for plastics, which have much lower melting temperature. So I think it has the potential to be quite disruptive. Um, and I think it has the potential to really unlock a whole group of entrepreneurs and SMEs that have always wanted to do cool things, but couldn't afford a 300,000 pound machine. And even, even if you think about just the reality of creating 660 degrees Celsius, I'm also going to hook one of these up to my wet system and get free heat from it. So, so we can, we can do a lot of experimental good. And I think that's really where Elvis and Cressy is, is going now is that, is that this really is our impact decade. We want to, we don't want to bring the world's leather waste to Kent for us to solve alone. We want to make sure that everybody understands how our solution works and we want to take it to them and make it work for them. And, and I think that's how we'll, I guess that's how we'll spread the message of who we are. And again, is this disruptive for luxury? Um, yes, absolutely it is, because I don't think any other luxury businesses are working on solar-powered microforges, but I think they should be. I love this. It's, it's big, and it should be and will be huge. And, <laughs> and it's the empowerment angle. Like Another thing I saw the other day is you guys have been doing some work with Barefoot College um, yeah. in terms of as a charity support. And it, again, it links so well to what you're doing because, you know, um, Aren't they're working on kind of educating a whole generation of solar engineers. Yeah, yeah. We we have, I mean, I've, that charity has been around since the 1970s and it has always been fantastically good at educating, particularly women from rural backgrounds in countries where there was, you know, a significant amount of extreme poverty. And what they recognized was that these women were clever. They just never had an opportunity to to have an education so why not give them an incredibly practical education in something like solar engineering so that they could go back to their communities and build and maintain a solar system for their community and eliminate the need for kerosene and also allow for light to happen at night, which means that, that there's all kinds of other educational opportunities for, for the young people in those, those communities. So we, we always knew that with the leather project, because uh, we give 50% of the profits from every range on a range by range basis to an associated charity, fire hose, fire, firefighters charity. But with the leather, we thought, what do we do there? And the reason we picked barefoot really was because we thought, you know, you can't, you can't de-link cows and climate change. They are kind of, they're kind of stuck together. They're peas in a pod. <laughs> yeah. So if we are going to to use this rescued leather and make the most of it, why shouldn't that leather be creating scholarships for women to train as solar engineers? I mean, this is this is brilliant. I think so much of the work that you and Elvis are doing is just so inspiring, and it's so useful for people around the world to kind of just follow you guys on your website or on social media to to get a boost of 
optimism and a boost of entrepreneurialism to make a and kind of feel them making a difference. I was going to say, in terms of as on a practical side, if if people want to follow and find out more about how um, Elvis and Cressy are disrupting and challenging and innovating, what's the best way for them to keep um, in touch with what I would call one of my favourite stories in terms of driving change on climate and social entrepreneurship? Um, so all of our handles are Elvis and Cressy. So Elvis, A-N-D-K-R-E-S-S-E. And our website is elvisandcressy.com. And there's lots of blogs there. There's lots of images. There's lots of videos. I think we have a, we do have a YouTube channel, <laughs> but we've just started putting videos up on it where even though, even though we sort of predate a lot of these technologies, we're sort of just getting around to making the best use of them. And then when this crazy, crazy Corona time starts to taper off, which I fingers crossed hope will happen sooner rather than later, come and find us because, you know, we are always happy to show people around and we're always happy for people to send me lots of beautiful boxes of waste to open on a Friday. It's been phenomenal to catch up and I'm sad because time's too short. We could have a podcast that ran for uh, much longer than we've had time to talk about today. But it's been a pleasure to talk through your journey so far, individually, as a company. Um, But I have to admit, I'm most excited about what's coming next. Like this next decade for you guys, it's going to be huge. Well, if we get the if we get the forge done, I'll, I'll you and I will have to chat again because you know I'm barely containable now. I think I will lose complete. Con- if we manage to pull that one off, I will be completely out of control. So that will be fun. That will be great fun. I was going to say next couple of years, um, word of the year, hopefully not Corona, but microforge. Hashtag microforge. <laughs> That's what we're going to see. You know, and I'm sure around the listeners, there's people right now thinking, I want to make this, or I can create <laughs> this, or I have access to this kind of waste material. And if we can connect the dots in some way, I mean, this is a, the next decade is going to be a very exciting chapter. So inspiring. Some great lessons on how to make waste beautiful, luxury, sustainable and the power designed to give back. It's such a remarkable journey from that first roll of fire hose in Elvis and Cressy's lounge to becoming a brand at the cutting edge of disrupting the fashion industry. Loving the idea of the open source microforges too. On the next episode, I'll be talking to architect Michael Paulin of Exploration Architecture, who's renowned for his work in the field of biomimicry and innovation. His TED talk on using nature's genius in architecture is one of my faves and has over 2 million views. Michael is also a leading light and spokesperson for the Architects Declare movement in the UK, which now has nearly a thousand practices signed up. We'll be exploring regenerative design and how the architecture world is responding to the climate emergency. Thank you for joining us on Designing with Climate in Mind. If you're enjoying the series, Please subscribe or share or leave a rating on your podcast channels. Until then, goodbye and thanks for listening. This podcast is powered by Interface. If you'd like to know more about our flooring products and sustainability journey, check us out at interface.com or on Instagram at Interface. Thank you too to our producers, Tangerine.